Could I ask you to please turn in your Bibles this evening to John chapter 17. Uh, John chapter 17, we're going to be reading together just a portion from Jesus' high priestly prayer. Uh, We finished the Gospel of Mark last week. Uh, Next Sunday evening is our carol service. Please don't forget that, 4 o'clock and 6 o'clock. And remember to uh, bring along visitors and family and friends and neighbors to that. And so we've just got this one week uh, to, to, in a sense, fill the gap between our series in Mark and next week's carol service and then going into our holiday season when our evening services will stop until January. And so uh, the high priestly prayer of Jesus is an incredible portion of Scripture. We're not going to be able to even begin uh, to plumb the depth of that this evening. I just want us to look at one theme uh, out of this high priestly prayer this evening. Uh, And so we are going to be reading together just verses 6 to 19 uh, of this very special portion as the Lord Jesus Christ, just before he was uh, crucified, had this opportunity to pray to his heavenly Father. And we're going to be focusing on his prayer specifically for his disciples. So let's read together John chapter 17, uh, verse 6 to 19. I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me and they have obeyed your word. Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you. For I gave them the words you gave me and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. All I have is yours, and all you have is mine, and glory has come to me through them. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by that name you gave me. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction so that the scripture would be fulfilled. I am coming to you now, but I say these things while I am still in the world so that they may have the full assurance or the full measure of my joy. Uh, lost, lost you there, sorry Dion, that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I've given them your word and the word, world has hated them for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world, for them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. Just so far in God's word, let's just come to the Lord again and commit this time to him in prayer. Heavenly Father, as we come to this portion of scripture this evening, as we particularly want to just focus on on one specific aspect of your prayer for your disciples and by extension for us as your disciples in Johannesburg in 2023. Uh, We pray that you would help us to approach this portion of scripture with open hearts, uh, that we would be eager to examine your word and then to examine our lives in the light of it and to see where we perhaps fall short of that which you have intended and purposed for us as your disciples, to truly live out our calling 
uh, that you have ordained and purposed for us, the purpose for which you came and have redeemed us to yourself. And so please, will you speak to us this evening, Lord? Help me as we consider this passage. Help each of our hearts tonight to be eager to, to listen. Uh, protect us from all the distractions around us in heart and mind. And may we give our full attention to you now as we listen to your word. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I want us to think about something this evening which really does affect all of us. Um, it's something which we cannot avoid, and so if we haven't thought about this subject biblically, uh, we can get ourselves into all kinds of trouble, and it is the subject of the church and the culture. What should our relationship as Christians look like in this world in which we live, and why? So let me just start off this evening by trying to define the word culture, uh, the culture in which we live. Here's a definition. Culture is the totality of socially transmitted behavior patterns, arts, beliefs, institutions, and all other products of human work and thought which characterizes the functioning of that society. I'll leave that up. You. And as you consider that definition, we need to realize that, that the culture we live in is an all-pervasive concept. It affects everything, the way we communicate, the way we greet each other, for example, our face-to-face -face conversation, even our online communication using email or messaging. It affects everything. It affects the arts that we find beautiful. It affects the music we listen to, the jobs we pursue, the way we play sport, how we relax, the things that we find important, the way we understand relationships with our spouse, with our children, with our friends, with our colleagues. It encompasses what we value and devalue. It impacts our morals and our ethics. Everything is affected by the culture. So if you think about that, it's very difficult then to separate the idea of culture from the concept of a worldview. You can't ask a fish what it is like to be wet because he doesn't know that he's wet. He was so immersed in wetness from birth, he knows of nothing else. And so it is similar with our view of the culture. We are so immersed in it, we are born into it, we grow up in it, we often don't realize what we just assume about the world, what is good and normal and right. And it may not seen, be seen the same way if we were living in a different pond or living outside of our pond. And so although closely related to culture, our worldview uh, is different. Our worldview is that big picture framework which explains the world that we live in. A person's worldview seeks to answer the questions of life, the big questions. Is there a God? Who am I? Why do I exist? What, what is the meaning and, and the purpose of my life? What is happiness? And, and how do I achieve it? So in one sense, our culture is the product of our worldview. As soon as I have a framework 
of answers about who I am and why I exist and what I think really matters in my life, then I will start to live according to those beliefs in the way that I speak and the way that I think and act and the way I view relationships with other people, the things that I value and appreciate. And so a person's worldview effectively then produces the culture in which we live and move. But here is where things get complicated because it's not simply a one-way connection. The culture in which we are immersed will also in turn shape and mold our worldview and the worldview certainly of the next generation as we were reminded of this morning in terms of our responsibility to parent our children. And so we see that culture and worldview, they, they feed each other, they feed off each other, they're dynamic and, and it changes over time. And so we need to ask the question then, well, what happens when a person becomes a Christian? When we are saved by the grace of God, when we have been transferred, listen to the language of the Bible, from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light when we are given a new citizenship in a heavenly kingdom and we've been adopted into the family of God. What happens when we become a Christian? Well, what happens at conversion is that a believer is not given a new culture, but we are given a totally different worldview. Our answers now to the questions about God and man and the meaning and purpose of life are now radically different from what they previously were in our lives. A believer is given a Christian worldview or a biblical worldview because we now look at life around us no longer through the lens of subjective cultural interpretation, like a fish, but through the objective wide angle lens of the truth of God's word. The Christian should be able to take a step back from the culture in which we are so immersed and we are to evaluate that culture according to God's perspective, according to God's values and norms of what is good and right and beautiful. And so as Christians, we should be seeking to intentionally, consciously work hard at developing a biblical worldview by which we then rightly understand and answer all the questions about life. I said earlier that our worldview and our culture are the products of each other, and so now the Christian is faced with a problem. The culture of the world in which you and I live is no longer in tune with our new worldview the motivations of people for doing what they do out there, loving what they love, pursuing what they pursue, the, the motivations in their hearts and the motivations in our hearts are no longer the same. And so a conflict arises between the Christian and his or her culture. Now there have been three main approaches to this concept of the Christian and culture to try and tackle this problem over the years. The one view is that we must reject the culture. This view says that man is sinful and so everything in our culture comes from a wicked heart, sinful motivation, and so we must reject the culture outright. We must have nothing to do with it. We must, in actual fact, withdraw from it. 
And so over the history of the church, this has resulted in people withdrawing from their society, becoming monks or, or hermits, living in caves or living in small, remote, rural communities which are withdrawn from the mainstream culture. And you only need to give a cursory glance over church history to know that this has never, ever worked. Why? Because the heart of man is sinful and we take our hearts with us wherever we go into those remote communities or caves and so the problem is not solved. However, you will often find Christians who justify their withdrawal from society uh, that in doing so they often become proud and critical and judgmental and unloving towards others around them, especially those in the culture. That's the first view. The second view is that we must embrace the culture. And this is quite popular today in many Christian circles which sees all things as a gift from God. We are no longer under law, we are told, we're under grace. And so we need to embrace everything that this world has to offer as now redeemed by Christ. And so you will find people thinking like the world, acting like the world, drinking like the world, partying like the world, listening to the music of the world, dating like the world, dressing like the world, working like the world, and they see no conflict in their embrace of a worldly lifestyle and the call of God to a life of holiness. And then there's a third view, which says that we must transform the culture. This is also quite popular today. We must get out into the world and we must become Christian musicians, Christian artists, Christian bankers, Christian teachers, Christian politicians, and we must redeem. We must transform the culture to, to fall in line with the principles of God's word. And, and so the focus of this third group is to then engage with the culture in a very constructive way, in a way which does not seek to offend, but rather to transform. And at face value, this all sounds quite good. The problem with this third view is that it ignores the biblical truth that if we live our lives as Christian musicians and Christian teachers and Christian lawyers and Christian business people, the world will hate us as it hated Jesus. So, so the difficulty we find ourselves in is this, that all of these views have something about them which is attractive, which is good, but also much which is lacking. All of these views can find scripture verses to justify their position, but they have to ignore other verses which contradict them. All of them lead to various problems and excesses. No matter how sincere people are in trying to live out these different approaches to the culture, each one of these fails to be true, I think, to the main thrust of Scripture and certainly to the example of Jesus. So what I want to propose tonight is that the answer is not to reject culture outright, nor to embrace culture, nor to transform culture. What I propose is that when we look at the storyline of the Bible, and when we particularly look at the example of Jesus Christ, we find that the answer is to reach the culture. So I want us to turn to this prayer of Jesus and to see how Jesus prayed for his disciples and then what this prayer can teach us as Christians in our culture in the 21st century. 
If you just glance over verses 6 to 10, we see that Jesus firstly defines for us a Christian disciple. Now we know that Jesus here is specifically praying for his 11 disciples. Judas had already left them. But we know that, that every one of us who is a Christian today has been saved by Jesus to become a disciple of Jesus. And so there is also much for us to learn from this prayer. And in verses 6 to 10, we see that a disciple is someone who Jesus says has been chosen by God, has been given to Jesus, who has heard and accepted and believed the truth about God, who knows for certain that Jesus is the Son of God, and those who give glory to Jesus throughout their lives. It's quite a wonderful description of a Christian. We must notice that it is only these that Jesus is praying for. Specifically, he says he's not praying in general for all men, but specifically for those whom God has given to Jesus who have believed in him for salvation. So what is it that Jesus then prays for these disciples? What is then the prayer by extension of Jesus for you and me today if we are truly disciples of Jesus? Well, Jesus firstly prays that we will be protected by God as we live in this world as a new Christian counterculture. Look at verse 11. Jesus says, I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me. So, so the main thrust uh, of Jesus' prayer is that as he prepares to, to leave the earth and to return to God in heaven, is that those who are his disciples will be guarded. They will be protected by God in the world. And then Jesus highlights four characteristics of what he desires us to be as Christians in this world. What does this Christian counterculture look like? And in the first place, we see unity. Unity in verse 11b. It's, it's quite striking uh, in our modern culture today. It's one of individualism, where we are told that being a Christian is all about me. It's all about my personal experience of God. It's about my personal preferences with regards to worship music, the styles of worship music. It's, it's all about different preaching styles that I resonate with. It's about serving in ministries which I find acceptable to my schedule. And yet we see that Jesus' first request to the Father is for his disciples to live as a unified Christian counterculture in this world. He says that they would be one as we are one. That they would be one even as God the Father and Jesus are one. He's praying that for us. Now, if anything goes against the, the grain of our modern culture, it's this topic of unity. Because unity implies shared values. It implies a shared vision, a shared purpose. It involves me giving up something, you giving up something individual for the purpose of something greater than the sum of the individuals. There's a greater common cause. And Jesus prays that we as Christians will be one. 
we would be unified in Christ just as the Father and the Son are one. This is actually mind-boggling when you consider the doctrine of the Trinity, the, the three persons, one God, and, and Jesus is drawing on that and saying, that's what I want. That's what I'm praying for my disciples. So perhaps we should already pause at this point and ask ourselves, why is it that we as Christians seem to have such little impact on our society these days? And one answer may at least in part have to do with our lack of unity. And I'm not even speaking about our lack of unity between various denominations or, or various local churches in, in a single city, but even our lack of unity as brothers and sisters in Christ in the same local church. Something I've come to see over the years is that churches which, which really make an impact on the society, churches which seem to be proactive and sacrificial in giving of themselves and their resources to the work of God, churches which seem to be living out what I would consider to be a contagious Christianity, are churches which are characterized by a deep sense of love and unity in the body. This world looks at us as God's people. And when they see a, a oneness of mind, a, a oneness of purpose in caring for one another, loving one another, a oneness in our desire to worship God together and glorify His name, this will be something which is totally uncommon in the world out there. And it reflects, Jesus says, even the very unity of God Himself. We are called to represent God on this earth in a way that apart from the church, the world will never see. How far do we fall short of that? Jesus prays for his disciples that they would experience a unity in Christ which is totally countercultural. That's the first thing. The second thing Jesus prays for as his disciples and for us as his people is to know true and complete joy in Jesus Christ. Look at verse 13. I'm coming to you now, but I say these things while I'm still in the world so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. What a prayer. Jesus is about to go to the cross and die and then be raised to life and ascend into heaven and his prayer to God is that his disciples will have the full measure of his joy within them. This is such a, a rich statement. We could never do justice to this in just a couple of minutes tonight. Let me just ask you to think about this. What was it that motivated Jesus to go through the humility and the suffering of life on this earth? What motivated Jesus to go through the agony of the cross? What enabled Jesus to not give in to the most severe seasons of temptation? Well, the writer to the Hebrews tells us, look at Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. Here it is. Who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Again, consider him 
who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. It was for the joy that was set before him. It was the joy of glory back in heaven. It was the joy of resuming his seat at the right hand of the Father. It was the joy of knowing that he would have accomplished a redeemed people as his precious possession. It was the joy of knowing that his Father was most glorified in him through his obedience to the Father's will. It was this joy which motivated Jesus. And now Jesus prays that his disciples and you and I will know the fullness of his joy in us. As we live through shame and scorn and persecution, as we have to take up our cross daily to follow Jesus, as, as we overcome temptation of sin and suffering in the struggles of this fallen world, as we have to deal with opposition from sinful people, Jesus is praying to God that you and I would know his joy fully, the same joy that he had, that joy to know that this world is passing away, that our redemption in Jesus is secure, our glory, our home in heaven is, is prepared for us, where we will be in the presence of God for all eternity, that we will be given new glorified bodies and we will be with God forever, worshiping him and loving him and serving him as we were made to do from the very beginning. Now look at how Jesus expresses this in verse 24 and 26. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you've given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. I've made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I may, myself may be in them. I really can't get my head around what Jesus is asking for you. Again, we just see this concept of abundant and fullness of joy. This is totally countercultural. It's literally out of this world. People around us, they only know a fleeting, superficial, fading experience of joy as it pertains to what they get out of this world. But they have no understanding, no comprehension of the fullness of this joy which is found in Jesus Christ. And that is especially seen in times of sickness and suffering and grief and persecution. See, because our joy is not based on these corruptible things of this life. Our joy is based on the person and the promises of God, both in this life and the one to come. And so, although true Christian joy is countercultural, the amazing thing about joy is that joy is contagious. I do not know of anybody who does not want to be happy. Everybody wants joy. And so we should be those people who are living out this contagious joy, true joy, in the midst of a desperately sad and disillusioned world. 
And yet, if we are honest, sometimes we Christians can be the biggest moaners of them all. The biggest complainers when things in this life don't seem to go our way. And sometimes we even remain grumpy when they do go our way. Jesus prays to the Father that we would be characterized, that we would know the fullness of his joy in us. The third aspect of Jesus' prayer for us to live out a, a Christian counterculture is to be men and women and young people of holiness. We see that in verse 17 and 19. Jesus prays for his disciples that God would sanctify them, that God would make them holy. Now, now what does that mean? Well, in the context, we see particularly from verse 19 that to be sanctified means to be set apart for God's service. Holiness in the Bible is a very big word. Uh, it's a word with various facets, various dimensions, but I think at the, at the root level, our understanding of holiness is to be set apart for God's service. We see that holiness is not primarily then about obedience to rules and regulations. It's not primarily about not sinning. No, first and foremost, holiness is being about set apart, being set apart or consecrated for the sole and exclusive use of God. Jesus says in verse 19, I have sanctified myself. For them I sanctify myself. I've set myself apart for them. Now think about this, Jesus did not need to be sanctified in the sense of being purified from sin. He was the spotless lamb of God. But he needed to be set apart for God for the purpose of coming to this earth to die for sinners. He was set apart, he was consecrated to do the will of the Father who sent him, which is that he should lose none of those whom the Father had given to him. So Jesus sanctified himself for us so that we too may then be sanctified for him. There's no hope of you and I being set apart for God unless Jesus was first set apart for us. And so that's why Jesus came. And then notice the means of our sanctification. How does this setting apart for God take place in the church? in our lives. Look at verse 17. He says, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. Now, if anything, again, is countercultural today, it's this idea that there is something called truth, absolute truth. Today, our culture says that all truth is relative. What is true for me is not necessarily true for you. There are no absolutes. And even if there were, our culture tells us that you won't find truth in a book that was written thousands of years ago. Now, if you want to find truth, you need to rely on modern science and philosophy and psychology to discover the wisdom of this age. But Jesus comes and he crosses all times and cultures and he prays that you and I would be made holy, that we'd be set apart for God through the knowledge of God's word which is truth. It is. We don't have to defend it. It is. It's truth. 
Once again, as we seek to apply this question of the Christian and culture, we see that those who are set apart for the purposes of God, who are holy in all that we do and say, we will be those who then stand out from the culture. The very concept of being set apart for God means that we are being set apart from the world. And this happens, Jesus says, as our minds and our hearts are being transformed through the truth of God's word by the Holy Spirit. We who were once part of the world, we were useless to God, we are now set apart from the world and we are useful to God in his service. So this leads me to a very real question that we need to answer at this point. If God desires for you and I as Christians to desire or to exhibit our unity, and joy and holiness. If that's Jesus' prayer for us, why doesn't he just remove us from the world the moment we are saved? He can do that. That would certainly be the easiest and the most effective way for you and I to experience these things. Why then does Jesus pray to God in verse 15 and say, my prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. I would suggest that if we don't follow Jesus' logic in the prayer here, we'll get very confused about this whole issue of the Christian and culture. We will not see the importance of working towards unity, and we will never understand true joy, and we will fail in our attempts at Christian holiness. Because you see, the final aspect of Jesus' prayer gives us the reason why we stay behind after conversion, and it gives us the motivation for all these things that Jesus has been praying for. Remember that we said earlier that the, the goal, the primary goal of the Christian is not to reject the culture, it's not to embrace the culture, it's not to transform the culture. Our primary goal is to reach the culture. And that's exactly what Jesus says in verse 18 with the fourth aspect of his prayer for a Christian counterculture is one of mission. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. Here in verse 18 is the key to Jesus' worldview. This is the the worldview that drove all that Jesus did. It's the key to understanding our culture today and it's key to understanding Jesus' heart for the lost. It's mission, mission. Dr. Al Mohler, president of the Southern Baptist Seminary in the States, said this concerning all of this discussion around the Christian and culture. He said, we don't care about the culture for culture's sake. Our concern for the culture is simply because that is where the sinners are to whom we must go and share the gospel. The joy that was set before Jesus, the joy that motivated him to endure all the hardships of this earth, the suffering and the humility of becoming a man and dying on a cross, the the joy that was set before him according to Isaiah 53 is that he will see the labor of his soul and will be satisfied. Jesus' unity with the Father in heaven drove him to mission. Jesus' fullness of joy here on earth was because of his mission. Jesus being sanctified for us on the cross was to fulfill his mission. 
Everything about Jesus was motivated by his love for sinners. Jesus entered into our culture because that's where the sinners were. And so Jesus' prayer for us is that we will reach the culture. That's why he prays to God to keep us in the world, to protect us so that we can spread the good news of the glory of God in the gospel. That's why he prays for us to be protected from the evil one so that we might be spared for a life of mission. So are you perhaps struggling tonight to, to really embrace this idea of Christian unity with your brothers and sisters in the body of Christ here at Honeyridge? Are you struggling on a personal level to know deep joy in the Lord despite your tough circumstances? Are you battling with sin in your attempts to be holy and, and you just don't seem to be winning? Well, perhaps, perhaps your worldview is not as biblical as you thought. Perhaps you are trying to be a Christian without having had your worldview aligned to that of Jesus. You have not yet seen your life from God's perspective. Your life is not a quest for personal fulfillment and satisfaction. No, it is an instrument of mission to the lost. So as I conclude, what, what is the relationship between the church and culture? Why must we be in the world but not of the world? Well, the relationship between the Christian and the world we live in is one of mission, to reach others with the good news of Jesus Christ, just as you and I who are believers here tonight have been reached with the gospel through others who are on a mission to share it with us. If we can get our heads and our hearts around this truth, it will transform us as individuals, it will transform us as a church, and it will impact our society here in Johannesburg. So what is motivating your life tonight as you sit here? What's making you tick? Is it a desire for comfort and security? Well, if so, you will have very little desire for unity which Jesus speaks of between believers. Unity which cost Jesus his own comforts and security in order to do the will of the Father. Are you perhaps motivated this evening by a search for happiness? Well, if so, you will have a very little desire to pursue the joy which Jesus is speaking of because the joy which Jesus offers comes by way of obedience to Jesus which often results in suffering and rejection in this world. Are you perhaps motivated by a desire for acceptance? Well, if so, you'll have no patience and perseverance for God's call to holiness because holiness by definition means that you will stand out from those whose acceptance you seek and you'll be hated for the name of Jesus. Are you motivated by a desire to please yourself? Well, then you'll have no love for the lost You'll have no appreciation for the mission of Jesus Christ. You will become proud and conceited and your actions will be driven by a love of self and not a love of Jesus. But if you and I can grasp something about the depths of the gospel this evening, Jesus gave up every aspect 
of comfort and security to become a little helpless baby born in a stable whose life was threatened from the moment he was born. He gave up his independence and his own will in order to come and do the will of his heavenly father. He gave up his acceptance with God in order to be set apart as the sacrificial lamb of God who would die in our place on the cross. And he did all of this because of his mission to save a people for himself. So that we then, who have been saved by him, would know the fullness of his joy. So let's try and apply this practically as we close this evening. I want to ask the question, how do my motives align with the mission of Jesus? Before you decide if you will reject certain aspects of our culture, ask yourself if that decision is in line with your mission to reach others for Jesus. If so, then reject it before you decide to embrace certain aspects of our culture, be it the music styles or the forms of recreation and entertainment or fashion or language, ask yourself, am I doing this to satisfy the selfish desires of my own heart or is it really to assist me in pursuing others with the gospel of Jesus Christ? If it is, then embrace it before you decide to transform certain aspects of our culture, be it the arts or the business world or literature, check your motivation against the mission of Jesus to save sinners. And if it aligns, by all means, then transform it. Let me add another one. Before you decide to exchange the culture of Johannesburg or South Africa, for the culture of Cape Town or the culture of New Zealand. Check your motivation against the mission of Jesus to save sinners. Wherever you go, the culture may appear very different, but in reality, it's not. Because the culture there is also made up of sinners who need to be saved. And unless the mission of Jesus is the driving force behind your life here in Johannesburg to reach the most influential and powerful city on the African continent with the love and the grace of Jesus Christ, well, then you certainly won't be motivated by the mission of Jesus because now you can see Table Mountain. So here's the challenge tonight. If you keep the mission of Jesus always before you. There will be times when you will just outright reject the culture. There will be times when you embrace certain aspects of the culture. Yes, there will be times when you will transform the culture. And there may even be times when you exchange this culture for a different one perhaps even a foreign mission culture. But in each case, your motivation will be the same, to reach the culture with the saving grace and love of the Lord Jesus Christ.
Well, may God give us the grace here to leave this evening with our hearts fixed on Jesus in unity, in joy, in holiness, on a mission, Honey Ridge, on a mission to reach others with the love that Jesus had in reaching us. That is his prayer for us this evening. Let's close and pray to him. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you again for your word this evening. We thank you for the way in which your word cuts so clearly across all ages and histories and cultures and deals with the true heart problem that each one of us are born with, namely separation from you. Lord, help us to have your heart for the lost in our families that might be very close to home. Perhaps even our spouses or our children may not yet know you. Some of the children here this morning have parents who do not know you. May you truly give us a love, a deep compassion and love for those who are lost. May you give us a love for our greater community, our city of Johannesburg, this country, our continent, and to the ends of the earth. Lord Jesus, thank you that you saved us. Thank you that you've given us this new biblical worldview to see the world in which we live through your eyes, through your heart, through the lens of Scripture. May we be people that are characterized by studying your word, growing in it, being transformed by it, that we might truly represent you and your mission wherever you place us and send us. For we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.